Welcome to the podcast of RUF at Boston University. But we're in this series on the book of Revelation, and it's titled, There is Hope, the Victory of Jesus in the Book of Revelation. So we're in a book that has 22 chapters. We have to figure out how to pare that down for 11 to 12 weeks. And so we're going to be looking at the book thematically and Tonight, we're going to be doing two chapters, chapters two and three. So there's going to be a lot that I'm skipping over. Um, but I'll just reiterate again, I want to invite you the semester to come and see Jesus in the book of Revelation. So um, not just on Tuesday nights, but during your personal Bible reading, or if you want to start reading the Bible for the first time, please take one of these Bibles in your pews. Uh, pews, sorry. <laughs> Chairs, um, they are for you. So if you don't have one, please take one. Um, but we want you to be able to read along. Even tonight, we can only really fit like one chunk of scripture on the slides. Uh, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation 2 and 3. And if someone can find it in one of the uh, Bibles in your chairs, then just shout out the page number. I think the ESV is identical. 1028? Okay. So it's all the way in the back, the very last book. Um, but I would also invite you to, if you have questions about this book, if you have uh, things that are like, man, I really want this explained or some help or some guidance in reading this, um, please see all these other avenues, all these other things we do as ways that you can come and learn about the Bible. Uh, but please feel free to talk to me, whether it's after large group or um, anytime during the week, I'm available to to grab coffee and chat about anything. Um, but this is a complicated book. We're trying to make it clear. We're trying to make it um, at least give you some doors and windows to look through or to go through um, to make it a little bit more accessible. So last week in Revelation 1, we saw this vision of Jesus. The Apostle John was exiled on this Isle of Patmos and he uh, saw this vision, and it was a vision of Jesus, and it was a really remarkable kind of, you never really see this ever kind of thing. Uh, in fact, it was so uh, powerful that he fell down flat on his face as though dead. Um, it was so um, compelling that it says that his face was as bright as the full strength of the sun. Uh, out of his mouth was coming a double-edged sword, uh, he was in this white robe. His feet his, uh, were like brass. Um, but in this amazing display of mercy and grace, the first words out of his mouth to John were, fear not. Put his hand on his shoulder and he said, fear not. I am Jesus. I am the first and the last and the living one. I've died, but now I am alive forevermore. The entire book of Revelation is revealing Jesus and his work, his continuing work with the Christian church. Now, I'm going to be using the word church a lot, and I just want to make something clear. Uh, we can think of a church in terms of like city on a hill is a church, a specific congregation, right? But when I use church, most often I'm referring to the global universal church. So all Christians in all the world throughout all time. But tonight we're actually going to be looking at letters directed to specific churches. Um, so I'll try to make it clear when I'm using 
uh, which sense, but these um, letters, these sayings, these passages um, about these churches, which were in real cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, um, they were receiving these as letters directed to them in their specific context. So it was to a specific people in a specific context addressing specific real historical things that were going on in these churches. But because of Revelation and how it's structured, we know that there were many more churches than just these seven. And so these seven were chosen. Seven is a symbolic number to indicate that this is supposed to represent the universal church in all places and in all time. That means it's a message for us today. If you are a Christian, this is a message for you. If you're not a Christian, if you've never set foot in a church, we are so glad you're here. This message may come across as slightly odd at times. I want you to, to maybe notice in this that Jesus, when he appears in this vision, his first words are not to, hey guys, let's talk about all of those other people, all of those non-Christians, um, all of those heathens out there, right? Um, no, he, his first words are to the church, to his beloved, uh, to the people that he loves. And you'll find that the church is a mixed bag. Um, I want to begin by just reflecting on how we think about church today. What is the Christian church known for? What would we be known for by outsiders? There's this book called Unchristian by David Kinnaman. And his answer to that question, what are Christians known for, is that outsiders think of our moralizing, our condemnations, and our attempts to draw boundaries around everything. Even if these standards are accurate and biblical, they seem to be all we have to offer. And our lives, our lives, are a poor advertisement for these standards. We have set the game board to register lifestyle points, then we are surprised to be trapped by our mistakes. The truth is we have invited the hypocrite image. So we'll find that to be true as we, as we look at these different churches, that hypocrisy is not a new thing. It's always been around judgment, hypocrisy. In other words, being unchristian. That's the reputation often that the church has today. So this has played out in recent sexual abuse scandals in the Catholic church, but in large Protestant denominations too, evangelical, non-denominational churches, Christian celebrities, whether it's Hillsong, whether it's influential apologists that lead global ministries. Um, there are so many stories of uh, abuses of power, of um, horrible wrongs done to the people under their care. And this is not just kind of at this high level, these famous like internet, YouTube celebrity type pastors. Um, this is true on the local level as well. I know it's true in Boston. And you might have come from a church background where there is some hurt and there are some leaders or people in that church that you carry around 
uh, that pain and that memory. This is one of the many reasons why the Christian church in America is shrinking. Uh, I think it was earlier this week, the Pew Research Center uh, put together some models that kind of projected the current decline in Christian church attendance for the next 50 years, so about 2070. And they said if the current trends of decreased membership in churches continue without any change, meaning like without limits, ceteris paribus for those economists um, in the room, the rate of Christianity in the U.S. will fall from 64%, which it is currently. I think it was in the 80 percentiles in, uh, in the 70s. So it says 64% to, in 50 years, 35%. In other words, Christians in America, maybe this surprises you, are still a majority. And in 50 years, within a generation, within our lifetime, um, that will be a minority. Christian church will be a minority. And this is true for religions across the board. And so what happens is there's, while there's this decline in the Christian church attendance, there's this increase in those who have no religious affiliation at all. They're called nuns. And this is actually, N-O-N-E-S, uh, this is actually true mainly for your age group, uh, young people today. If these nuns continue on the upward trend that they are by 2070, it'll be 52% of Americans have no religious affiliation at all. In other words, they will be a majority. But at the same time, at the same time, this, this decrease in church membership, this increase in no religious affiliation is happening. People are searching for meaning in places of gathered people. One of the most um, maybe surprising places you would find this, uh, I was listening to NPR, as I'm often doing on my drives. Um, And this woman, Carolyn Shin, wrote this book called Work, Pray, Code. You guys heard of this? Recently came out. And she writes about the rise of these techtopia companies, like largely in Silicon Valley, but there's also some in Boston, I'm sure, that speak about their company. They speak about the employees in the company as if it's this religious group where we are part of a, uh, a religious sect and we have this mission, we have this purpose, we have these rituals, we have this kind of spiritual language that we use um, or, or that these companies use to describe their tech company. So people are leaving the church, but they're finding some sort of spiritual journey that they can have together, this spiritual experience among their coworkers. And so they're, they're spending, you know, they're eating the three meals a day in their workplace. Uh, their, their CEO is usually this kind of like, you know, barefoot guru uh, of sorts. Um, the, the things that they do on the retreats seem more and more ritualistic and spiritually Minded, And her book kind of records this. And part of this is uh, because the technology they're developing is so ripe with potential for change, for changing the future. Right? Some are seeking to colonize Mars. They're creating community through social networks. That's a pretty obvious one there. But um, they're seeking to extend lifespans through artificial intelligence. I I heard recently about the ability, if you have enough video footage and sound footage 
of a person, enough data on a person, you can bring them back from the dead so that you can have a conversation with them as if you're having a Zoom call with a friend. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? If you have enough video data of someone who's died, you could basically give an AI the puppet strings in order to have a conversation with you, right? So we're, we're looking in these technologies for spiritual things, for meaning, for immortality, for a different world beyond this one. Is this starting to sound familiar? The things that Jesus promises in this book, as we will see, are things that we are still longing for, even though we've left the Christian church. And so that's why we are coming to this book that was written thousands of years ago. That's why we are gathering together as a motley crew of people who are saying, hey, Jesus still matters in some way to me, or I think he might matter in some way to me. Um, It may be coming less cool to do something like what you're doing now, and maybe next year it'll be even less cool. But we are coming here to meet Jesus because there's something about his promises. There's something about the hope that he gives that is unlike any other. I'm going to read the first seven verses just to give us a sense of the pattern that John uses, that Jesus uses when he addresses these churches. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you were to read on and read the six other uh, messages he has for these churches, you'll notice a similar pattern. He introduces himself, as most letters start with, right? Um, he, He kind of reminds them of the vision that John has had, something about this um, right here, it's, um, it's the one who holds the seven stars, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We've, we've already heard about that. So he reminds them of that, uh, who he is, who is his, his authority. He says something good that they're doing. He commends them. And not every church has something good to say about it. But if they do have something good, he will say it. And then he says, but I have this. We need to talk about this. He addresses the problem. And then he says, and if it doesn't change, if you don't repent, here's what's going to happen. And at the very end, he gives these promises, these remarkable promises, if they endure. I want to go through kind of each of these themes and try to sum up kind of the message and the thrust 
that we should get from them. So first, the good stuff happening in the churches. Um, I, I just mentioned a lot of bad stuff, and I don't want you to hear this as me trying to defend the Christian church. I, I, it's merely to acknowledge that there are good things that I think uh, many of us can attest to going on in Christian churches, even today. But what does he say to this, um, to these churches? To so Ephesus, he says, I know your works and your toil, your endurance. You, you don't like false teaching. He kind of calls, he says, good job. You don't like false teaching. You love the truth. To the church in Pergamum in verse 13, he says, um, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Um, Pergamum was in the middle of a place that had a large um, temple to a pagan idol. And so Satan's throne basically references that temple. It says, I know how hard it is to be a Christian in Pergamum. Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, um, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. To Theatira in verse 19, it says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, that it's, you are progressing in those good works and that love and service. So in some, he kind of commends the church how they've remained steadfast through persecution, not denying the faith, faith uh, their good works being done, their service and their love. What if we look at the church today? Could we say anything about those topics good happening? I think there are strong defenders of the faith, theologians who have tried to help us stay away from error. Um, This is a really good thing. Um, There are people who hold fast to Jesus in spite of obstacles. I think in America, probably the the main obstacle is probably becoming more of a social obstacle. Um, It's becoming harder and harder to kind of talk about your faith. And maybe we feel more and more lonely as Christians. But in other parts of the world, the church in Egypt, for instance, in the last decade has suffered a lot of attacks from ISIS. And yet the Coptic church in Egypt has persisted. They've continued. They've continued to worship. As far as service and love goes, I found this out recently, that Christians run half of the refugee agencies in the entire world. I didn't know that. Um, Christians uh, give disproportionately large amounts of money to charitable work. Uh, The civil rights movement, we're kind of in the center of the campus that uh, celebrates MLK Jr., who was a strong, devout Christian. Uh, He studied in the Divinity School here. Um, John Perkins, who kind of carries on his legacy as a devout Christian in Mississippi, and he's working for racial justice. The founder of the International Justice Mission, which is fighting human trafficking around the world, is a Christian. World Relief Fights Poverty. We could all probably name a few. And all of this by the grace of God. By the grace of God because the Christian church has serious issues. So he says to Ephesus, I have this against you, in verse four of chapter two, you have abandoned the love you had at first. To Pergamum, he says, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. There's a lot of idol worship at this time that might be hard to relate to. 
it's really difficult to understand maybe in our day. But um, think of these idols as counterfeit gods, people worshiping things other than God. I think we see that today. To Theotira, he addresses a prophetess whose name is Jezebel, but probably wasn't actually named Jezebel. It's just referring back to in Kings, where it talks about this woman uh, named Jezebel. And she was uh, teaching false things and leading people astray. If you read this, this might be one of the more confusing parts about it. I'd love to talk to you about it um, if you have questions. In chapter 3, verse 1 to Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. To Laodicea in verse 15 of chapter 3. I know your works. You are neither hot, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of your mouth, my mouth. To kind of sum these up, I think, for the sake of time, compromise and complacency. I think our experience of the church, we can probably speak to ways that the church has compromised its teaching. Maybe it's watered down things. Maybe it's brought in teaching from outside and it's corrupted the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Complacency. This probably hits the American church. I know it hits me probably the hardest. Maybe we don't experience persecution. Maybe life is relatively peaceful. Maybe we have everything we need. And yet we've ignored. And yet we've forgotten the poor, the outcast, those on the margins of society. This is hard-hitting stuff. And Jesus responds to it. And he asked them, he asked each church to repent. In each case, there's either um, cause for discipline if they don't repent, or a church who, who doesn't have anything really that God has, or Jesus has to say bad against it. He says, yet they're still going to be testing. I think we as Christians should remember Jesus' words that he said, a servant is not greater than his master. Because he suffered, we will suffer. That even churches, even if you have uh, your faith growing, maybe you are a mature Christian, maybe you have renounced the things that repented of the things that you need to repent of. Um, if you experience suffering, remember that Jesus did too. And Jesus was perfect. He was perfectly righteous. But there are those whom Jesus says, if you don't repent, this is going to happen. And these are really hard words to stomach sometimes. I would encourage you to go back through and read these and remember that the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. I think it's helpful to think about this within the context of the whole book of Revelation, which is a cosmic war. The war is against Satan, the flesh, and the world. 
Um, the war, as, as we'll see it, it it's a war against uh, Jesus and the beast, right? That's where you need to come back to your, your fantasy novels and remember that we need to have that lens there. But remember that it's a war. And what Satan wants most of all is you to listen to false teaching, is you to listen to temptation and follow that path to your own destruction. And so if Jesus ever says, repent, stop, it's because of his mercy. It's because of his love that he wants you to turn from your sin and follow him because of what he has to promise. What does he have to promise us? To Ephesus, he promised a tree of life, not a resurrection because of artificial intelligence, our brain in a vat. He promises that our bodies will rise from the dead, that the tree that God kept us from eating in our state of sin in the Garden of Eden. He, he banished us from the garden so that we wouldn't stay in that state of sin and that he could save the tree of life, which was the other tree in the garden, for the end. When we are resurrected in glory and we can eat that tree and be immortal. This is the promise that he has. That's what the tree of life symbolizes. He says uh, it will give a crown of life that um, in that immortality, in that eternal life with God, we will be heirs with the king, Jesus. We'll be heirs with him. We will reign with him. We will have that authority with him. In another part, it says that you'll be given a white stone with your name written on it. And the only the one who knows the name is God and you. There's a lot of mystery surrounding that promise and that prophecy. But all throughout um, the prophetic books of the Bible, um, there is this promise that, um, I, that Israel's name will change. And there are even characters in the Bible whose name changes in a significant turning point in their life. We'll have our identity fully uh, remade by God. It says that we will be given hidden manna. This won't be food sacrificed to idols. This won't be uh, bread that we'll have to eat again. This is a feast. Remember in manna in the, the Old Testament, it's the food given to the Israelites in the wilderness. This food that came, the bread from heaven. There's nowhere else it came from. They were going to starve if not for God's provision. Uh, we will not just be given morsels of bread. We will be given a feast. As we'll see later in Revelation, there's a marriage supper. There is a feast um, that we will eat with Jesus. It says that we are given the morning star. The promise of the church is to be given Jesus. Jesus is the morning star. We are given him. It also says that we will be given clothes of white. Our sin our even attempts at good works, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. Instead of admitting us based on the degree of cleanliness of our clothes, of how well we've done in this life, we are given 
a new set of clothes. The righteousness of Christ. Clothes of white. It says that we will be given name and the book of life, that our name is written in indelible ink, that it cannot be erased. That we will be made into a pillar of the temple of God. We will be made into a, a um, symbolically and, and uh, mysteriously, a pillar of uh, a temple of worship to God. That in heaven we will worship our Savior. One of the things that you'll see when you go back and read this is that for each church, he says, I know. He starts with, I know your good works. I know such and such. I know. This is Jesus saying, I know. He is the shepherd, the greatest pastor who never fails you, never leads you astray. He is the shepherd taking care of his sheep, taking care of his church. And he does that through testing, through discipline, through the words that call us to repentance and faith. But he's calling us to hope in him. If we were to hear those words from Jesus, I know. If we were to say, Jesus, I send in this way this week, and hear Jesus say, I know. If we were to say, Jesus, I hurt, I'm in pain, he'd say, I know. And I know what's to come. And I know what's to come after that. And the next day. Jesus knows, not just in an abstract sense, but particular stuff going on in your life. He knows it, and he's saying, hope in me. Because I know you're being tempted to hope in some other stuff right now. And I know there's so many other things that claim to be hopes. But I am the hope that has died and is alive forevermore. I will never let you down. He is the one who overcome. Another pattern that shows up, he says, I know everything about you. Endure. Overcome. To the one who overcomes, to the one who endures, these promises are yours. But he has already done that. He has already overcome. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Take heart, I have gone through persecution, through suffering, through torture, through beatings, through people spitting in my face. I've gone through death and hell. I've come out, and I'm bringing you with me. You may have some time in your life, and you may be in the future, you will want to give up on the church. You will just be like, I talked to someone, one of my buddies uh, a couple of days ago, and he's like, yeah. Kind of stopped going to church for like a couple years. And of course, the pandemic makes that very easy, right? Um, Jesus here is showing us that he is not giving up on the church. And if Jesus is not giving up on the church, I don't think we should. So let's hope in Jesus because he is our only hope. Father, Give us more of Jesus. That's all we can say because we struggle. The church struggles. The church is, um, yeah, sometimes a hard place. Sometimes it's a place where we can just worship. 
with full hearts. And Lord, we just ask that you would uh, just guide us. Uh, thank you that you know us. Thank you that you are, are coming to, to save us, to secure our place um, with you forever. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.